0: There are secrets out there, guys, performance marketing secrets, and knowing just one or two of them can light up your funnels. Let's go. This is Performance Marketing Insiders. I'm Chris Mechanic. Join me as we go deep into the secrets of the world's elite marketing minds. Performance Marketing Insiders is sponsored by Web Mechanics, the AI-driven performance agency that makes you smarter. Hello, everybody! Welcome to another episode of Performance Marketing Insiders. I'm super excited for our guest today, uh, who's an entrepreneur. He's led sales teams at at various uh, international uh, enterprises. Started his own company. He's an entrepreneur. He's a writer uh, for Forbes, among many other uh, publications. He's a speaker, um, and also a dad. I just learned, which is which is very cool. But, ladies and gentlemen, uh, inner or. Welcome, Barry Maroney, to the show. Barry is co-founder and CEO currently at uh, Leadable.io, which I'm super excited to learn about. Welcome to the show, Barry.
1: Yeah, thanks, Chris. Happy to be here.
0: Yep. And fun fact, Barry is in Ireland right now as we we record. I'm in the DC Baltimore area. So it's 3 p.m. for him on a Friday. And we were joking that this is the last thing standing between him and a cocktail. So we appreciate you being here, Barry.
1: Absolutely. I wouldn't miss it for anything.
0: Awesome. Cool. Well, you know, we're all about secrets here. Let's jump right into it uh, and then we'll um, we'll talk about some other things. But share one of your biggest and most powerful performance marketing secrets with with the audience.
1: So the biggest one I would say is that most people genuinely believe that they are doing ABM in their outbound, but very few actually are. And the reason why I would say that is because we speak with, daily, we speak with owners and sales and marketing leaders of B2B startups and agencies, but B2B tech companies for, for the purpose of this primarily. And pretty much every, if I was to say anecdotally, if we spoke to 10 people uh, throughout the course of a week, and generally the topic of ABM and outbound pretty much always comes up in the conversations that we have. And I asked them, you know, to to ask them, are they kind of running that in their outbound and tell me a little bit about it? And of the 10, pretty much everybody will generally say, anecdotally, that they are doing it. Mm-hmm. But when we dive into it, I would say one to two, at best, of those 10 are actually doing it in any worthwhile capacity. Um, Interesting. Yeah, anecdotal evidence, but, but we've seen been seeing this for a long time now.
0: Yeah, and ABM is one of those things where different people do have different definitions of it. So I'm curious yep. to hear what your definition of it is, but... Like, what are you seeing folks doing that is ineffective first before we talk about the the right way to do it?
1: Yeah, absolutely. So ABM related to outbound is kind of what our speciality is. And that's what we would typically talk about. Mm-hmm. And what I would define that is, is rather than taking a kind of spray and pray blast approach to any markets, it's identifying, you know, key select accounts that you want to go after mm-hmm. and treating them differently two other ones, because they're not all the same, treating them differently, approaching them differently, where I see it primarily going wrong. And I will say I've been as guilty of this as anybody else. So if if I was asking myself now that question two years ago, I would have said, yeah, we're doing ABM and our outbound, but we weren't. We were doing, I think, what a lot of other people were, but we thought we were. And that would be most common ones I see is that they would, first of all, be splitting accounts up by territory for example and rep a rep is focused on a territory and they're saying yeah you know it's a kind of an account-based approach because we're we're working on these people here and we're treating them differently on the east coast than we are on the west coast for example but it isn't they're just they're behaving in the exact same way they're just doing it for their own select groups Mm. another one very similar to that probably more common is that they separate let's say reps by vertical and a rep mm-hmm. here is focusing on pharma, and another one is focusing on manufacturing, or something like that. Yeah. But again, the reps are just behaving in a normal manner, but they're just let's say focused on that one industry. But they're doing everything the exact same. Yeah. And then the last one, I think, which is pretty common, and and I think marketing are heavily involved in this part, is creating, let's say, industry-specific collateral. So it's like, okay, we are gonna we're gonna do a drive. The next six months is gonna be a automotive focus and they're going to build all this collateral around it but it's going to be pretty general automotive related related stuff and we're going to run outbound campaigns in parallel with all of this but again it's it's not specific to any given accounts it's just a general automotive type campaign and for all three of those i would say that you know the vast majority of people that i would speak to when they say yeah we're doing abm and our outbound it's one of those three things that they say is kind of why they think they're doing that yep so
0: ABM is not breaking it out by verticals, it's not breaking it out by territories, and it's not just one specific campaign, uh you know, the flavor of the week kind of thing. Uh yeah. so what is it? Like what I mean, I think I know what I think it is, but I'm interested in like your definition of it. Like what do you consider to be really good ABM?
1: So I think there's a, there's a couple of ways to to look at this and there's kind of some actionable takeaways from this as well, is that if you look at, no two companies are the same. So if you have, and we're going to generalize here a little bit, but if you have a large or let's say you start off with a, a small total addressable market, so you're working with a company and they have maybe large contract values and a small total addressable market. Mm-hmm. you got to treat that very differently to the company who has you know, maybe still decent contract values, but a larger total addressable market. So let's focus on the small one first. If you've got, let's say, and we do work with clients who have maybe three or 400 companies total, that's that's the market, big contract values, but there are 300, 400 companies globally that they want to go after. Mm-hmm. So you got to make the most of every single one of those. You know, you, you can't just run a campaign and blast it out to 300. You know, what are you going to do next month? You're going to be kind of out of things to do. So... Yeah building smaller lists and we had an example actually this is on the most extreme end we had a a client who the idea was it was it was kind of an invention and it was it was a new idea and the the owner there he was actually a client of ours on another project and he, he had set this up on the side and he said that he either wanted to sell it to one of six companies globally or he didn't want to do anything with it. So we spent six months working with him where we targeted one company per month. They were six very large companies. But we identified 25 key stakeholders, influencers, decision makers, people who might be interested in it in each of those companies. We mm-hmm. did deep research on all of those individuals and we ran, like I say, very personalized outbound campaigns, taught them across email and calling and handwritten letters and personalized videos and LinkedIn and going out to all of those, but all of the messaging was specific and unique to the individual based on what they cared about within the business. So mm. let's say if the company is a so the finance guy or the finance person, you would
0: send them, you know, something financial. The salesperson would be like a like a sales
1: yeah. type of a hook. And, and in the vast majority of companies, they're typically it'll vary from company to company, but there's usually four stakeholders with with SaaS companies. You usually have a commercial buyer and a technical buyer in a lot of cases, and you're going to have an above the line commercial buyer and a below the line commercial buyer. Mm-hmm. And they care about drastically different things. You know, the the below the line, let's say the IT manager at IBM, they don't care about, you know, the big picture with IBM. They're stuck in the weeds. You know, you're trying to just do something that's going to make their day a little bit shorter, their life a little bit easier, You know, whatever the case may be. Right. Somebody who's at a more senior level, they maybe care a little bit more. They own budgets and things like that. So they care more about other things. And it's going to be the same on the commercial side, below, above and below the line. So treating them all differently, focusing on the motivations and the kind of selfish interests that they have and going out with that type of messaging on an account-by-account basis. Now, that's not really sustainable for most companies. That's an incredible yeah. amount of work. And that's on the extreme end of it. If you, let's say, flip it to the other side and, you know, probably most cases with most SaaS companies, you're going to have a decent total addressable market. Most do have a decent size. Uh, and if you've got contract values, average contract values in excess of, let's say, 20K, if it's going to be less than that, I think ABM is probably not worthwhile, to be honest. You're better off with a, a more scaled approach. Mm-hmm. But at that level, it doesn't really make sense to do all of your research and personalization on an individual basis because you can hit more people by doing your research on the brand so like what is the company talking about what are they focusing on you can maybe split it out by personas so okay the technical people care about this the commercial people care about this and you write a commercial message that's gonna apply to let's say four or five people in commercial roles within the business and you scale it to all of them and it's the same it's Generic, but personalized to the company, but generic across the four of those people. Similarly on the mm-hmm. technical side, and that allows you to scale it a little bit more. And that's probably more practical for, I would imagine, most of the listeners. It's still very time consuming, um, but it's you know it's not as crazy as the other way.
0: Yeah. So would that be the general playbook, or because I imagine there are some people listening that are like, "Oh my goodness, that's totally me." Like we say we're doing ABM also, but we're not really doing it. Is yep. there some kind of playbook or some like sort of five steps so if i'm that company which we are kind of in a way that does these seasonal campaigns targeting a certain vertical or splits out the country by geography like what's what's a step or how can i take a couple steps in the right direction
1: so that, that's not a bad idea. So that like that's a, a good place to start, you know, so you don't have crossover with reps. You know, having somebody focused on an industry or on territories is, is a very good start. It's it's just the next steps after that, yes. rather than just blasting everybody. I'm a big, big believer in quality over quantity. Again, the contract values, your, your cost per lead is going to be higher doing this type of approach because you're going to get fewer of them, but hopefully you're going to get better ones. Um, but I'm a big believer in quality over quantity when the contract values are are higher and I would much prefer to see a rep focus on doing quality outreach to you know 20 30 50 accounts per month rather than you know doing pretty average very basic automated generic stuff to to 500 or a thousand uh, accounts per month and that's where I think that the shift can come to a little bit less about, and I know a lot of people will get kind of pressure from above to be like, you know, you got to make a hundred dials a day. You got to blast out a hundred emails a day. So it's very difficult for somebody in a more junior role to fight back and say, you know, no, I'm going to do this myself. Um, But from leadership, I think if the focus is less on the output and the actual quality, I think the results tend to be better. And there's also a very big brand impact to all of that. So it's not sustainable to do that high volume, you know, generic kind of automated outbound. It's bad yeah. for the brand kind of primary reason for starting Leadable was, you know, based on experiences that I had with that and seeing that I just didn't like our brand being represented in the way that it was in a previous company I was with and knowing that you can actually have a positive brand impact from outbound if you do it in the right way. You know, if somebody isn't ready to buy or you know willing to buy at any time, you can leave them with a you know, a, a nice taste in their mouth so that when the time is right, maybe they think, oh yeah, you know, Barry, that guy at that company, that that, that was a good outreach. Maybe I'll go back to him.
0: Yeah. It's funny because there's a lot of folks listening, probably even some executives listening that are like volume, 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 like what? You're only going to be talking to 30 to 50 companies a month. Yeah, uh, We had this client one time and their CEO was, was exactly that. Like, basically almost on a daily basis he would say more emails more emails more emails and they were sending out like hundreds of thousands of emails and getting the lowest you know like like 0.01% sort of response rate and he's just like more more (laughs) and I'm like man take it easy yeah um it's not working (laughs) so uh so that's interesting. I want to talk about Leadable um, a little bit, but I want to also bring up one last point on ABM and see if if you have some kind of a cool solution for it. Hmm. So true story, uh, we have not really done much ABM for ourselves historically. Yep, We've started doing more uh, lately, but we get a lot of inbound still. Like most of our leads are referral or they're coming through inbound. But we set out uh, on a quest to do a proper ABM campaign like super like you would probably be proud or impressed by it um yep. targeting finserve mm-hmm. finan- or not finserve fintech so and and the cadence was basically you select your companies ver- or you know the process was we I think bought some course or something but you select your Prospects very carefully. You do the research, and you start uh, outreach from different channels. Like I think it was a like a warm up outreach, which maybe was a direct mail where mm-hmm. we sent them some kind of nice present, and then we would LinkedIn, we would like them on link or you add them on LinkedIn. A couple of emails, they would like get you know invited to to some community events that we're doing. So it was like a really kind of structured and strategic warm up process. Uh, and, but we ended up pulling the plug on it. And the reason that we did a was because our inbound engine was like, get, you know, giving us all of the activity that we needed or wanted. But B was because, um, we found that a lot of folks were just not in market. Right. So Mm -hmm. like, they're like, Hey, you guys seem cool. You sound great. Like, I really appreciate the, you know, the thoughtful and the, and the clever outreach, But like, you know, we just got a new CMO and they just brought in a different agency and we just signed the contract. Like, it's not going to happen kind of a thing. Yeah. So how do you respond to that? Like, because in any given segment that you want to target, only a small percentage of the companies are even in market. Like, they, you know, wouldn't even maybe consider your solution. How how do you tackle or approach that? So you're not just like, you know, sending emails to companies that like... Like literally can't or won't buy no matter what.
1: Yeah, so you're you're 100% right there. It's like they say, I don't know, not proven, but like 3% timing is everything and 3% of your audience will be in a ready to buy thinking about buying kind of mode when you're reaching out to them. So what we do with this type of outreach is we, if we've got a list of, let's say we want to run a campaign and there's 50 accounts on this campaign and let's say calendar year timeline, we started on the 1st of January. They would start off in what we call a primary campaign first. And this runs for six weeks. And during that time, they're going to get one email per week for those six weeks, all very personalized to them. They're going to get a handwritten letter during this time, obviously very personalized to them. They're going to be getting video outreach during this time, and we're going to be calling them during this time. When those six weeks are up, you know there's going to be a decent percentage of people who don't convert. You know, best campaigns in history, there's always going to be a decent percentage who don't convert. We don't want to give up on them, but at the same time, we want to protect the brand. We don't want to spam them. We don't want to, you know, ruffle any feathers and annoy people. So we give them a 30-day break after those six weeks are up, and then they go in a drip campaign, and that's much softer. So this is typically one email per month over a six-month period. The rule in this is no call to actions. So we cannot ask for their time for anything. So we're sharing industry relevant resources case studies things that could be perceived of value to them Mm -hmm. and what we're trying to do with that is just kind of stay front of mind a little bit if things change you know that that we're still knocking around what it also does is it acts as a bridge for what follows with a re-engagement campaign and this would be seven months after the primary campaign ended and this is more like the primary campaign and let's say we started in January we're now in you know kind of August September kind of time when this uh Reengagement campaign is running, and this is more like the first one. We wouldn't bring personalization back into it; it's not worth it at that stage. But it's all a little bit closer together. The call to actions are back, and we bring the calling back into it. Mm-hmm. So it's a kind of a you know maybe we did very good outreach in January, but maybe they started working with a new supplier in November and they just didn't care, don't want to think about it. But maybe right. in August, you know they are. And by doing that, so we we build that. That's your first, let's say, fifty accounts that you're targeting. But while we're doing that in January we're building the next campaign. And on the 1st of February, the next batch of 50 accounts, they start their journey. And on the 1st of March, the next one do it. So the idea with that is kind of sustainability with a total addressable market. you know, Rather than blasting everybody up front at once with not particularly good quality outreach, it's building quality campaigns month over month. So you get that compounding effect because you add to the pipeline, but you don't take away from it. And it's quality at all stages. Interesting.
0: That sounds actually really uh thoughtful and and clever and i imagine it could work do you ever say in your messaging like hey if you're not in market to buy like
1: just let me know and I'll, I'll i'll unenroll you Yeah, so we try to be very very soft with all of our call to actions uh you know you can and i look back and cringe a little bit actually i looked at like some of our early campaigns from like three years ago. And we did all this great work at the beginning of an email, let's say. It's all very bespoke, all very personalized to them. And then the last sentence is, you know, not as blunt as this, but like, you know, give me 15 minutes of your time. It's like, it's, you are know, being all nice. And then we're just like salesperson right at the end. Whereas yeah. we've kind of flipped that now. And we typically end with kind of, look, happy to have a chat whenever, either way, best of luck with that thing that I mentioned earlier. So it's much softer, a little bit less salesy, and we're playing more of a I think up on sales is becoming more and more of a marketing play Then it's obviously a sales play, but a marketing play as well. When you do it in that manner and you're you know, trying to build that positive brand impact and you're not just hounding for quick wins by like, you know, spamming everybody incessantly right off the bat. Yeah,
0: I agree with uh, that. I agree with that. You can kind of like sense that, uh, it's not a desperation but like when you when people are just like going too hard it's like you can you can feel that energy yeah yeah um i like that that last line either way like good luck with this or that that's a pretty good one i've had success uh in terms of the call to action with i can carve out so if you say i can carve out 15 or 20 minutes it's like oh i'm super busy like I might be able to carve it out of my schedule.
1: Yep. Got to be very intentional with every, every word that's used in every email has always got to be a lot of psychology that goes into, you know, every call to action, every sentence at all times.
0: Awesome. And well, that was really, really useful. I think lots of people are on this call right now, like nodding their head and saying, yes, we absolutely have to do that. Uh, And I think that your, your sequence, the way that you set the sequence up where it's like, Six weeks on, 30 day break, like six weeks on, somewhat aggressive, 30 day break, and then six weeks on uh on the the drip on the back end. I think that's a really good uh like sequence from the macro view. Yeah. And then the idea of enrolling fifty. I mean, you could probably automate most of that, and then you just are enrolling fifty, so it kind of sort of I mean, it's some takes some work to get it to get it set up, but it has the potential to basically just be a lead machine.
1: Yeah. So your first, let's say that primary campaign, the first six weeks, there's a lot of manual work goes into that because the deep research and all of the personalization, all of that messaging would go into that. But you're right; after that, that drip and that re-engagement campaign is is relatively automated, and that's admittedly you will get the vast majority of your results from the primary campaign. But you do pick up you pick up a worthwhile enough of the other ones from from kind of the drip and the re-engagement and a bit of work up front to set it up not a huge amount uh, but then after that yeah it it runs pretty automated nice One other thing that I want to show you actually and I I don't have I just have this right here uh, hadn't actually thought about this, but this is extreme ABM um this is kind of expensive and I wouldn't um. An idea like this is always going to be expensive, is what I mean. And I wouldn't recommend it for everybody. But if you have very large contract values, an additional direct mail piece, so something along these lines, so you'd have this like arrive to the individual, your adventure begins, kind of intrigue, You know what are they thinking? And then they would open it up. And in this box, for example, they get uh, a couple of things in here. So first thing is this kind of old-timey paper with a wax seal on it, which is a nice touch and the oh god just ripped it there and then a kind of a walkthrough of like what to expect so what's in the box kind of a little bit of a mystery but then this is the cool part so they open it up and in here is an old nintendo style cartridge case but it's all personalized so this is my name and this is my photo but this would be the prospect's name and their photo and the company branding would all be on it the story on the back is you know take over as chris mechanic and you know the fearless leader of our time on his quest to you know solve all the wrongs in the performance marketing industry all of that would be bespoke to the individual they open it up nintendo style cartridge case in there all very premium again all personalized with the name and the face and all that kind of thing what don't tell me you can
0: actually play it
1: yeah so you don't need a nintendo to, to go and play it that would be a bit extreme but they go to the website. So they would go to your website and you would have a dedicated page on the website. There's an iframe there. The game exists within that iframe. And they take over and the character is there and your face is in the top and your name and all of this personalized stuff is in the game. And they are going and they're competing. or they're, It's a very easy game. Runs for about a minute. You get past a couple of baddies along the way and you get to the boss. And the boss is your number one competitor. So let's say you're trying to reach out to the VP of marketing at HubSpot. The boss is Salesforce, and you got to get past this boss, and and you lose. The, the, the boss kind of takes the key and runs away. But all hope is not lost because you can by selecting clicking here book some time on Chris's calendar to see how you can you know beat Salesforce in the long run. Uh, so that's kind of just another. This is pretty new for us. It was very new for us actually, um, but it's another way of strategically going at you wouldn't do this for everybody um but going after high value accounts where you know that you're willing to spend a little bit more to catch their attention doing something that just nobody else is going to do to to get in front of that person yeah
0: that's very clever um so once once they're on the website playing the game the the boss like actually somehow looks like salesforce
1: like what like is this like a salesforce logo on there or the or no it's it's like a generic kind of. It's it's like in an Indiana Jones adventure kind of theme. And It's just a generic kind of boss, but the name is there. You know, it's like a. Oh, I see. And it's almost like a. You know, it's a two D platformer, and up here it's like Chris Mechanic and you got your life bar, and then you got Salesforce and their life bar. Oh, I see. Gotcha. And then like it prompts you to say, "Okay, go and book a meeting with, you know, Chris or whoever is going to take the call from there." Wow, that
0: is definitely clever. I mean, it would definitely get attention for sure how do you do that is that something that you guys like built yourselves or is that a tool that you use
1: uh so it's it's a partner that we're working with who are kind of so we do all of the personalization parts for us and we have it as part of the campaigns that we would run and then we have a partner who executes on actually you know shipping and delivery of the boxes and the game and stuff like that
0: interesting interesting cool can you say who it is or
1: is it yeah yeah no no, no, absolutely not. The the company is called Outboundless. Outboundless. Interesting. Yep. Cool. Let's talk about your company a little bit. Yeah, cool. Um, so, yeah, Leadable is a it's an outsourced sales development agency. I I don't really like to be grouped into the lead gen agency world, although technically that is what we are. Um, but it has you know our our industry has a pretty bad reputation. To be fair. And for good yeah, right. reason, you know, there's a lot of pretty bad operators out there. Uh, we do it in a very different way. So forgetting about the kind of high volume and th- the real inspiration for starting this came from a couple of sources. One kind of earlier in my career as a full cycle kind of outbound rep, knowing that when I took that approach, when I would, let's say, identify 10 companies and say, okay, I'm going to go after these 10 and I'm going to do research and you know do my best with them, that it worked well. But I... I couldn't consistently do it, and I did it in spurts. I might do like 10 this week, and then I might do it again for two months, for example. I might be busy with other things. So I couldn't cons- consistently do it, and I definitely couldn't scale it. As a head of sales, then trying to build out outbound teams without economies of scale is an impossible task. So you know the idea behind the SDR outbound function works, although we've seen a lot of, kind of negative PR in layoffs at the moment. But in theory, it does work. With economies of scale, you know, team of 10 reps, dedicated manager, full tech stack, all of that. But when you've got one or two reps, I learned this the hard way that, you know, who's going to manage them? you know, probably somebody who shouldn't be, and it's going to be very time consuming. The cost per lead just doesn't really work because there's a lot of attrition in the role, a lot of attrition in the role with the kind of outbound rep. Uh, and you got to buy all the tools and the tech. So I realized, okay, there's an issue here. So I went and used a couple of agencies myself. And this was the real eye opener because I saw kind of what the model was where i had the same experience twice i won't mention the names of the agencies but they were reputable ones and they were premium priced um but we had the same experience where we had the onboarding you know this so we want to target this the kind of messaging all of that was fine but then we just lost visibility we didn't know who they were talking to and what they were saying and what they were doing in both cases what i then came to learn was the model globally was built big lists thousands of people dump them all in spray and pray quick wins for the order of the day and it was only when the first lead was actually introduced to us that we we saw the thread of messaging because they made the introduction and it just wasn't our tone of voice at all. It was really pushy, really persistent, really salesy. And you know I, I just couldn't forgive that part of it. I wasn't willing to accept burning 999 people to get one person, but you know they were more than happy to do that. So I realized that there was obviously lots of companies out there who couldn't play that game, maybe particularly ones who had smaller total addressable markets and larger contract values that... Just, you know they'd be out of people to talk to in in a month or two if they played that. Yeah. So yeah, started leadable kind of t- to solve that issue. and we run much lower volume kind of ABM style outbound campaigns to to very select groups. Well,
0: that's awesome, man. Well, congratulations. It looks like you guys are doing well, only three years, but you've been um, you've already got a pretty sizable team. it looks like.
1: Yeah, yep. Yeah. it's 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 been a good run. Uh, we've got 30 in the team now uh, actively recruiting for a few more roles. And yeah, pretty happy with with how it's going. I think we've got a good process down. Always iterating and trying to improve, but it's uh, it's going pretty well.
0: That's very interesting. So, had you ever worked pre? So you'd never worked at an agency. You'd worked with agencies. So you're. Exactly. So this is basically your first agency experience, where you started an agency. Absolutely, yeah. Well, that uh, takes some takes some hoots, <laughs> how's it how's it been going is it is it a lot like what you expected is it um easier more challenging than what you were
1: thinking uh i don't know i mean it's it's hard to say. you know when, when you're caught up in it you know if, if if i looked at where we are now three years ago i'd be like wow we, we must have done something really special to get there but but when you're in it it's just like you're just you're going along with it and you know it's it's just kind of happening um So it's hard to say whether it's easier or harder, you know, it is, you know, it's, it's full on as in, there's no, I'm sure you know this yourself, that there's no mental downtime. Even when there's downtime, there's no real mental downtime. You know, you're always thinking about things and, you know, trying to write things and and do things like that. Uh, But all in all, I've thoroughly enjoyed the experience. I've always liked some, my background is kind of marketing and sales. So I studied marketing, worked in some marketing roles but always did a little bit of sales along the way and then kind of realized that I I I really liked the sales side of things, but I do have the, the strength in marketing. And that kind of, you know, the biggest piece of advice I would give to any young person who wants to start a business at some point in their life is to get sales and marketing experience. It makes it so much easier because you're going to be the sales and marketing person as the founder for a long time. And... That made it a lot easier for me and made it a lot more comfortable because I was, you know, very competent and experienced in building small things and bringing them to market. So something new for myself, I had done it several times before for other people, so it wasn't particularly daunting.
0: Nice, nice. And so um, do you guys, well, I imagine you are, but is you're eating your own dog food like most or you're getting you have your own campaigns running that are producing leads for you?
1: Yeah, so we get about 90% of our business. That's actually a rough number that I've pulled out of the top of my head, but I'd say it's about right. Uh, about 90% of our business comes from our own outbound campaigns. It actually makes the sales process so much easier. So I had a call yesterday with a, I won't say the name of the company, what type of, uh, it was, a, I can't remember, some kind of, um, it was something in SaaS anyway, on, on, a, on a very technical side. But we had the prospect replied six weeks in, and we had been in touch with five key stakeholders for six weeks, full on. Nobody had replied. And I would always, prior to every sales call, there's a few different pieces of research that I do. A few things that I'll try to learn about the business size of the business, when they were founded, where they are, structure of the team in terms of outbound reps, and who has engaged with what so far that we've sent them. And you're normally hoping to see that, you know, of, of the five people, we typically target five people in any business at any one time, you're hoping that a few of them have seen some stuff and maybe click through. And when I went through the process of doing this before that call yesterday, I saw that four of the five had been like crazy engaged, loads of clicking through, you know, watched loads of videos, done loads of things. So I thought, okay, this, this is a hot one. And, you know, went through the normal pitch. And at the end of it, uh, the guy on the call, he was the VP of sales was saying, you know, look, sounds very positive. And I know already that I have executive buy-in because the CEO had actually prompted me before this call to said, you know, I, I want to hear about that. So it makes our sales process, so like leads, we can, we have a much higher conversion rate on leads that we get from our own source as opposed to like a, you know, a random inbound lead because the yeah. person has been through, they've experienced what their prospects are going to experience. Um, so yeah, we we get pretty much everything, the vast majority from from doing what we do.
0: Interesting. I'm curious to know what your own campaigns are like. It sounds like what I heard just now is that you you kind of sort of pre sell. Like I bet your campaigns are part educational, part you know part positioning and differentiating, and part uh, expectation setting. You know, part answering frequently asked questions. Is that kind of it? So they they show up at the sales call
1: and they're like. Where do I sign? <laughs> yeah, like it's it's uh, again. I'd be a very very big believer in, and probably you know one of the biggest areas where people go wrong. Now I will say, so we are about fifty percent of our portfolio are B two B tech companies, and about fifty percent are agencies, marketing agencies, PR agencies, creative branding stuff like that. On the B two B tech side, for the most part, the unique value prop they're they're pretty clear on it, and usually. It's focused on a problem they solve as opposed to the solution itself. Agencies, I, I can't say the same, bit of a generalization, but for the most part, they want to say, oh, you know, you should work with us because we work with Red Bull, Nike, and Coca-Cola. So therefore, you should work with us. But people don't really care about that, you know, because everybody says something along those lines. So focusing, and we like lean into this very heavily with our own outbound campaigns, focusing clearly on the problem. And in a lot of cases, trying to preempt the problem that they don't know that they yet have. So, for example, a very common campaign that we run weekly is we identify companies who are recruiting for outbound reps. And particularly ones, we look for ones who don't currently have any because they've thought, okay, we'll go and we'll build an SDR team or we'll actually, worse still, we'll we'll hire an SDR and they haven't really thought it through in a lot of cases. You know, they haven't realized that really they need to hire five or six and a dedicated manager and they need to spend probably, you know, 20, 30, 40K on a tech stack. So we go with an educational piece. We try to be, you know, you got to thread the line of not being condescending, but at the same time, poking the bear a little bit to be kind of like in a subtle way, like, have you actually thought this through? Uh, you know, these are some of the problems that lie ahead. If not, you know, I'd be happy to have a chat, that kind of thing.
0: Gotcha. No that that makes a lot of sense and um, and I could it, I could imagine that'd be a thin line to thread between being educational and condescending. Yeah. Uh, but it's also true, you know, if it's your first if it's your first outbound rep that you're hiring, you should probably hire at least two, and you will need to manage like someone will need to manage them, and there will and and I bet a lot of folks don't think it don't think it through fully. So that's actually an interesting technique.
1: I was as guilty of that as anybody like that. That was the second reason for starting the business was because I found myself in that position where several months in and, you know, it was actually going okay with a rep and then realizing we didn't think this through. Like this isn't, even if they hit their targets, you know, it's it's not going to be sustainable. The cost per lead is too high when we consider everything else that goes with it. That's awesome, man.
0: So can you think like have you run any campaigns and maybe it's the one that you're doing for yourself, but are there any like real standout, just like big win success stories that you can think of um, for your, it could be for a client or for, um for yourselves that you can kind of just like, let us know kind of like if you're feeding a hundred or a thousand companies into this machine, like what kind of overall response rate and
1: performance can you expect on the, on the best days? So you'd be hoping for between 5 to 10% of the accounts that go in turn into like active conversations. You know, I would say, you know, the word lead or MQL is everybody defines it differently. So I would just say that people who commit to a time and turn up to a call and say, yeah, okay, I want to hear more. Um, five to ten percent of the accounts going in is kind of what you want to see. There are cases where you know we have clients where that could be one or two percent, and they're very happy because the contract values are, you know, five hundred k, million dollar plus. So cost per lead is a relative term. And then there are cases where you know, in some times, you know, all the stars align and some campaigns just go incredibly well. Uh, one example that I can think of off the top of my head was an agency that we work with um, where they were targeting. Up and coming like Challenger drinks brands, so challenger alcohol, gin and whiskey brands and things like that. Now, one of the reasons why this worked well is that they were smaller companies that they were targeting, but they had the potential for decent, you know, retainer values for, for them at the same time. But going after those smaller ones, when you are I always say that if your if your audience is owners, they're the easiest people to target. Definitely. Okay. Owners of, let's like, say, you know, Facebook or twitter or ibm or something like that forget about that you know you're not going to get through to those but if you're talking about owners of regular companies if you have a compelling message they will read it you know it's it's not like somebody who's mid-level in a larger organization they'll just you know if, if it's not relevant to what they're doing right now and it's not going to put out one of the seven fires that they have going on they're probably just going to bin it or whatever but when campaigns run to owners and i would say you know if you're talking 500 employees and below. That's definitely a very clear audience that we can go to. You can get the best results. And in this particular one, like the metrics were insane. They were. It was a total outlier, but it was like 92 percent open rates or something like that. Something like 36 percent or fifty-something percent click rate. 36 percent response rate. Something like wow. crazy, crazy numbers. Now, total outlier, but crazy, crazy numbers. And it just shows what is possible with the right. You know when all the stars do align. A lot goes into making that happen, obviously, but that's where yeah. You and can it sounds like get to.
0: some of the keys to success in that campaign. And fill in any blanks or correct me if I'm wrong, but targeting. It sounds like you're, you're not targeting massive whales. Like you're targeting, you know, small to mid sized companies where the owner is pretty accessible. That's one clear one. Um, yep. it sounds really specific as well. Like just you know, challenger drink brands for instance like very specific uh what else what else would
1: do you think that I'd, made that one go gangbusters so I, I like the the reason for that one is because and, and that wouldn't be the norm for us so we typically target much larger businesses The the nature of our model clients that we work with typically target enterprise and that's what we go for with them but in this case what made it go so well is that the the owners of these brands so when you're targeting an owner of a smaller brand when you're doing your research and you're writing your personalized and relevant messaging, they're going to care about a, a lot of different things. So you have a lot of things that you can talk about. So let, let's say I was reaching out to you about you know, something that was going on at, at Web Mechanics. You're going to be involved in it in some way. You know, You're definitely going to know, even if other people are doing it, you're going to know you're going to have played some role in it and it's going to be relevant to you. But for example, let's say you're reaching out to I'm picking on IBM here, but let's say IBM, and you're looking for things that are relevant to this particular IT director that you want to contact. It's not that easy. You know, you're you're, like, we look for this, let's say that IT director and they're in Salt Lake City. We're looking for specifically stuff that's going on in and around that area that's relevant to IT because we think, okay, if they are, you know, head person in IT in that area and there's something to do with IT happening there, they probably know about it. They probably had some level of involvement. They're not going to care about a marketing campaign that happened in Paris, for example. You know, So right. we're not going to talk about that. Uh, but yeah, keeping it always, just when it's owners, they care about everything and they're, you know, everything is going to be relevant to them. But when it isn't and you're targeting larger businesses, doing your best to keep it relevant to you know them and what they care about specifically.
0: Yeah. I mean, it sounds like it's a huge unlock if you can target like the smaller businesses where, cause you're absolutely right. You know, I have a hand in most things that happen at web mechanics and, and any email that is relevant and talking about something current that's happening, like definitely is going to get my attention. Yeah. It's funny though, because most companies they'll say, Oh, you know, we like enterprise. Like we like, you know, the largest ones, but it's like, Okay, Mr. or Mrs. Client, could we maybe go down market just a little bit?
1: <laughs> yeah, yeah. A, a lot of times that can be, I was guilty of this at the beginning of this year. It can be a little bit of an ego thing at times where we, we developed a separate model toward the end of last year that in in theory was, was going to be really good, really smooth. It allowed us to control timelines in, in a much better way. I won't go into the details of what it was, but... The idea was they would also unlock much larger companies for us. So our sweet spot now is we target, like we work with companies who would have anywhere between twenty and two hundred employees. Would be the sweet spot for us, where you know outbound is important, but they don't really have economies of scale with the team in most cases. We thought, okay, we'll go and we'll target companies who have larger outbound teams and we'll support those teams, and that'll unlock bigger companies and bigger brands. And selfishly and kind of ego wise, just that'd be cool. I'd like to be, you know, I'd like to be working with those. But the reality then, the grass is not greener on the other side, because think about how much longer it takes to close those deals, the red tape that you got to go through, and how much more, depending on the circumstances of your business, but how much more are you actually going to make out of them? Is it going to justify as opposed to, for example, if I had a sales call with you today and you liked the cut of my jib and you said, okay, yeah, this sounds good, we could probably close the deal tomorrow. No red tape, you know, deal would be done and we'd move forward. A lot to be said for that. So I kind of realized during the summer that, okay, I made a mistake here. Let's cancel that idea and go back to like where we found our success and, and keep going that road.
0: Yeah, that's smart. I love that cut of my jib. I've never heard that, but I'm going to be using it. Nice. Cool, Barry. Well, we're almost at time. Let's get you out of here because I know you got a cocktail with your name on it uh, and a date night with your wife, but um, let's go to the grab bag. Quick. Quick uh, rapid-fire questions. Ready? Sure. Yep.
1: If you were to start a side hustle, what would it be? Um, definitely don't have time for a side hustle, but I would say one thing that I do like doing is is building things. So and not with my hands. I'm definitely not good at that. Uh, but building go-to-market strategies. So consulting in in that type of approach, definitely don't have the time for it, but that would be it if money didn't matter at all and I just wanted to do something for fun, I would probably look to do something in the golf industry because um, I, I like that.
0: Nice, nice. Uh, question number two, advice to your 18-year-old self or one thing you might do differently?
1: Hard to see. So, I you know, I've thought about this before and I, definitely I would say, you know, focus a little bit more in, in college and school and things like that. But at the same time, then I think about, you know, would I end up where I am today? Whereas, you know, I know for sure that if I had maybe focused a little bit more at the time, maybe I would have went and went into the big corporate world, like straight from, from college. And I'm pretty certain that I wouldn't then be here today had I done that, because I think it's not impossible, obviously, but I think it's difficult for people to transition from, big corporate world to small world you got to do this on your own um so i had a good kind of school of experience along the way with the companies i worked with a lot of smes and startups um and i kind of wouldn't change any of that so yeah kind of skirting the question but i actually wouldn't change anything because i'm pretty happy with you know where things are now
0: that's the best answer i've ever heard
1: thanks and then number three that's an e- this
0: is an easy one You're clearly very busy. I know uh, running agencies is not for the faint of heart. What do you do to stay balanced or what do you do to blow off steam?
1: Uh, A couple of things. So I've got a six-month-old daughter. Uh, Definitely, you know, and obviously working from home remotely is great because I get to see her a lot. So I'll just pop in and out random times throughout the day and just play with her for a little while. And obviously my wife is around as well. So, you know, that is great. And that's a big... You know, stress relief. The other thing I would say is I play golf, and golf is great because, you know, no matter what's going on, no matter how busy or, you know, what stress might be around, when you're on the course for, let's say, four hours, it demands like 100% of your attention. So, you know, it's like absolute mindfulness. I would go out and, and play, and I wouldn't think about a single thing work related for that time, I wouldn't look at my phone. Um, and that really, yeah, that, that helps a lot.
0: That's an awesome one. Cool, Barry. Well, this was awesome. Thank you so much for your time. I do like the cut of your jib. Um, (laughs) you, you did a great job. This was, this was packed with useful insights. Um, for anyone listening, let them know where they can find, uh, find out more about you or Leadable.
1: Yeah. So our website is leadable.io. So that's L E A D A B L E dot I O. And you can find me on LinkedIn, and you know, feel free to connect, Barry Moroni, at Leadable. Perfect.
0: All right, Barry. Well, thank you very much, man. You enjoy your date night. Have a great uh, time, and stay in touch.
1: Absolutely, my pleasure. Cheers, Chris.
0: All right. And that's a wrap. Thanks for joining us today. For show notes and other episodes, visit us at performancemarketinginsiders.com. This podcast is sponsored by Web Mechanics, the performance agency that makes you smarter, offering AI-driven search, paid social, analytics, and conversion rate optimization for financial services, health, B2B, and SaaS brands that know. Hey guys, exclusive for listeners of this podcast, you can get a performance marketing assessment for free. And this isn't some cookie cutter automated report. It lays out detailed, specific things you can do right now to unlock limitless growth and nirvana level personal satisfaction. To claim your free assessment, just go to Performance Marketing Insiders.com slash audit and you'll have your customer report within just a few days.